we're covering, we're doing uh, our best to cover two, almost two chapters, Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. 9, 9, 12, I think, is where we're going. But to start off, I want to start here. So we went to Starbucks recently on a road trip. We were going over east somewhere, and I don't remember exactly when it was. I think it was when we went to Silverwood. We stopped after lunch. We, we usually stop on Hood River and eat our sinful devilish food at McDonald's, and then we, I know, I know that, that, that heaps judgment and condemnation on my soul in our modern society, but we did it anyway. And we, then after that, we went and we went and got some Starbucks. We had Starbucks gift cards, and there's a Starbucks right around the corner of, from that restaurant, and all of our convenient, you know, addictions are right there in this one little place. It's perfect. And so we went to Starbucks, and wanted to get, you know, splurge a little bit. I don't get Starbucks anymore. I don't want to spend $4 on a cup of coffee when you can get a cup of coffee, you know, that you make at home for pennies. You know, it doesn't really make sense to me to spend that much money. And I know I'm, I'm condemning a lot of people by saying such things, and I'm not trying to condemn you. I apologize for, for doing that. But uh, it's not in my notes, and I'm going off script, and things get bad when I go off my notes. But... We went to Starbucks, and uh, I, I was getting myself a, a, a 1,200 calorie caramel frappuccino. I don't know how many calories are in it. I just, just it feels like a lot, but it's really good. So I like, I get it once, a, once a year or two. And um, got my wife her pumpkin spice latte. And when I went inside, it was like, like I was some kind of weirdo, right? Went inside instead of going through the drive-through because most of the cars are going through the drive-through and just like you know most fast food restaurants, Starbucks is the fast food restaurant of the coffee business and they devote all of their primary energy to the drive-through, right? And so I'm some kind of weirdo that likes to go in old school and see a person's eyes when I'm when I'm ordering my drink. And it's not that I don't trust the people, but you know even though you know why why would we? Why would we have any reason to not trust someone? We've never heard any stories about people doing things like spitting and sneezing in our drinks. And, you know, being behind a brick wall wouldn't give anyone the freedom to do such an atrocious thing. So I like to be able to see the people making my drink and just feel better about it. So I went in and went in there. And while I was standing there waiting for them to make the drinks, I was just kind of looking around to see if there's anyone to strike up a conversation with. I'm a little bit more of an introvert and I'm trying to work on, on talking to people in uncomfortable public you know, environments like that. And so I'm over there by, by the sugar stand and where all of the other addictive ingredients are for, that we like to put into our drinks. And I'm standing there and, and I look around the coffee shop and every single person in the coffee shop besides the workers have their heads down in their devices. You know, some of them, some of them had tablets, some of them had, had smartphones, some of them had laptops, but every single person in the whole coffee shop, and there was about 20 people in there, had, had their faces buried in a device. And, you know, here I am, like some kind of weirdo, looking around the room, trying to find someone to make eye contact with me so that I could strike up some kind of conversation with a random stranger. 
but their eyes were glued to a screen. In fact, there was um, an interesting thing that happened. There was a young couple, and I, I, I was able to decipher that they were a couple based on the fact that the, the, the girl was over here next to me. I don't know what she was doing. It didn't seem like she was waiting for a drink, but she would be staring at her phone and then crack up laughing <laughs> and, and kind of look over across the room. And I could follow her eyes to where, to where her eyes went. And there was somebody sitting at, across the room and they, and they would, you know, a few seconds later, look at their screen and laugh and look back. And so there's just kind of this weird interaction going like, like what? What is happening? So I'm asking, like, what were they doing? What are they giggling about? It's, it's really awkward and uncomfortable when there's no conversation. There's no audible verbal cues to let you know what's happening. Like, were they making fun of people in the store? Were they making fun of me? I don't know. Like, were they plotting to overthrow the government? It's possible. You know, maybe this is part of the beginning of their plan. Or maybe they're just planning an excursion to the fabric store. It could be, could be any, anything. It's because I know a lot, of, a lot of kids these days like to go to the fabric store. <laughs> but there's no way to know, right? You can't possibly know because it's all on their screen unless you sit on their screen and look over their shoulder, over their shoulder and just kind of see what's happening. There's no way to know what someone is saying, which reminded me, remember back in the day? Remember how things used to be back in the day when you have to, used to have to make eye contact with someone? Like you would enter into a space like this and you'd see people and you'd have to make that awkward eye contact with a group of people you've never met before and it would be really weird and uncomfortable for a while. and You'd have to kind of work through that. And, and you'd, you'd have to say, hi, how, how was your week? How, what's your name? You know, how, what do you think about this weather? You know, it's really rained a lot this week. It's been really gray and gloomy and kind of cloudy today. You know, and, and we'd have to kind of work our way through these, these kind of surfacey conversations. And maybe if we were lucky, we would get to some more significant material. I mean, like remember back in the day when you used to go to a restaurant and you, you had a waiter or a waitress come up to your table and you'd have to make eye contact with them to order your food. And if something was wrong, you had to make eye contact with another person to deal with what was wrong. I mean, but now you can just order all that stuff on your phone and have it ready for you when you show up, you know, and just kind of come in and pick up your food and leave with a minimal, minimal human interaction, right? We can minimize human interaction that way. That's a blessing of the society. We don't have to talk to people nearly as much as we used to. Remember, we used, to have, we used to have all of our neighbors' phones up on the refrigerator, right? Their phone numbers. Because nobody, nobody had a smartphone with an address book on it. And so you had the numbers. We still have this at, 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 on our fridge at home. And that way, if you need a, a cup of sugar, a couple of eggs... Right? You, could, you knew, or if there was a real emergency, you had someone to call, or if you're leaving your kids at home, you know, they know the neighbors, and so they can call the neighbors of something. You know, if the house is on fire, they can call the neighbors, and they can come over and put it out. But now, we, like, now we can just, we can watch reruns of Mr. Rogers on Netflix instead of having to meet our weird neighbor, Roger. Right? I mean... 
even though he's a single guy, he's an active member of the Obedient Wives Club, that guy. We don't want to meet that guy that's in our neighborhood, so we just never meet anyone. Maybe we used to rely heavily on regular face-to-face -face interaction with our spiritual community to encourage us in our faith. We've talked a lot about how that's changed. But now we can just simply let whoever controls the, the content that we see on our phones tell us what we should be learning in our walk with God. There's no need to read our Bibles anymore. You can see the same 15 verses on Facebook and Instagram, artistically rendered in various formats every day for the rest of your life. There's no, read, no need to read your Bible. Those were, those were the days, the good old days, right? And all of this has changed in a relatively short time period. I mean, we claim on a regular basis, probably even in this room and even at these tables that we're sitting at, that we, we just don't like to change. You know, it's, we can't change. We don't like doing the hard work of changing. But over half of the world's population has literally changed almost everything about how we do life in the last three to five years as a result of our embracing technology. We've changed a lot. We're really good at changing. This is a good, like we should pay attention to this because we say we're not good at changing, but we're actually really good at changing because we've changed, we've had the most significant, I've heard people talking about the most significant social change since the printing press was invented. We're living through a great revolution right now with technology. This is, and, and, and we have endured it and changed with it without any struggle. And can you imagine what it's going to be like in another 10 years? I mean, after, after our bodies have adapted to the use of smartphones by growing an extra set of thumbs, after our vocal cords have atrophied from never actually having to talk to another person, we can just do it all by text. And after Google has had to, by court order, surgically plant devices right into our brains because they have caused the loss of ability for long-term memory, we'll probably be so immersed in our virtual world, living our lives through artificially intelligent surrogate robots that no one will ever get sick anymore because we'll never be around another living being. Futures looks really good. That whole vaccination argument, just gone. We don't have to worry about it anymore, right? There might be riots in downtown spaces, but no one will worry about it because no humans will actually be harmed in the process. So, so that will be taken care of. We'll be able to choose our newscasters based on you know, our favorite actors and celebrities of days gone by. So I'll get to watch Tom Hanks talk about the top trending virtual cat videos that are getting shared on Instabook because they're owned by the same thing. They're going to merge eventually, right? I mean, it's just the way it's going to happen. You know, so, so instead of hearing about people doing bad things to one another, I don't have to worry about that. No actual human beings will be doing anything anymore. So I can just listen to all the great virtual cat stories because there won't even be real cats. <laughs> 
But this is good news, right? I mean, this, this is actually good news because we're changing really fast. We are adopting technology with minimal consideration to its long-term effects. I mean, just like we used to use lead paint for decades before we discovered it was bad for us, we seem to be continually embracing technology without much consideration. As long as it doesn't kill us right now, as long as it doesn't kill us today or tomorrow, it can't be that bad for us. Well, so what's my point? Other than my typical rant on technology and we need to be a lot more mindful about what we're using our devices for, I actually have some points that I think really tie into what we're talking about this morning. First is we can change. Just look at the way the world has changed has been transformed by technology in the last 10 years. Just look at and observe our society. We change all the time, and not even just small changes, but radical, life-altering changes have taken place over the last 10 years, and it hasn't even felt like effort for the most part. So we can change. That is a good thing to know. Second point might be that uh, we're being incredibly effectively discipled by our non-believing world without any reservations. The discipleship of our society, of our secular culture, for the way we are thinking about how we do pretty much everything in life is incredibly effective. Our way of thinking has been incredibly shaped and transformed by the society that we live in and these little devices help us along that journey. And another piece of good news is that we are actually willing to let someone tell us how to live our lives. Now, we might be letting the wrong person tell us how to live our lives, but we're willing. We, you know, we might resist. We might, you know, when, whenever we feel like God is telling us to make a change about something in our lives, we might resist it because nobody tells me how to live my life. But we do let people tell us how to live our lives all the time. Like we're constantly adapting how we live our lives and what's important and, and how what we pursue and, and what our future is going to look like and all of these things. We, we, we let people tell us how to live our lives all the time based on social norms that are really changing quickly at this moment in time. And that's a good thing if we can learn to see that, oh, we're willing to let someone tell us how to live our lives. We just need to make sure it's the right person telling us how to live our lives. But I, I do worry that, that a lot of us are embracing the ideas of our anti-Christ culture. We're going to get into that in a minute. No, I'm not predicting that the anti-Christ has arrived on the scene. That's not what I'm saying. But we have an anti-Christ culture, and I'll explain that thanks to some help from Jim and uh, pointing out some connections between Hebrews and 1 John. But I do worry I worry about the influence that we at 6-8 Church and we as Christians in the society are allowing 11 hours a day anti-Christ sources to influence the way we think about purpose, 
meaning, significance, the most important things in life. Ironically, we think it's in the pursuit of individuality and being who we think we, you know, we, we get to choose who we want to be, but everyone ends up thinking the same thing, looking the same way, wearing the same clothes, following the same trends. Everybody has a fidget spinner when the fidget spinners are popular, right? I mean, there's, we all end up, even though we think we are autonomous individuals, we end up following someone else's lead and looking, thinking, and acting exactly the same. If we want to be true revolutionary thinkers, if we want to be true people who, who go against the flow and, and true people who are willing to, to take a stand where no one else is taking a stand, then, then it is not by continuing to go down the same roads that the millions and hundreds of millions and literally billions of people on the planet are going down. We need to start doing things differently. But I think we're in danger of letting secular antichrist sources write mistruths, half-truths, and full-on blatant lies on our hearts. And that's very critical. It's very much mission critical for us today. So I'm asking us who are we letting write on our hearts? Who have we given permission to write on our hearts? Who, who are we allowing to, to write their truth on our hearts and then live by that truth? Who are we giving permission to? Is it, is it God and his truth? Is it God's community of believers and, and what God would encourage us to do and the way that God would encourage, encourage us to live our lives? Or, or are we allowing people who are anti-Christ tell us what we should believe in the deepest parts of who we are? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, quoting from the Old Testament from a prophecy the author of Hebrews quotes this. He says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I talked briefly this week on the podcast about how there is a now and not yet aspect to this promise, that there will come a day when we will be free from all of the sinful pulls of this flesh and this broken, corrupt body that all of us are living in, our souls are living in and attached to the pulls and the, and, and the strings of this flesh which continually pull us, as scripture describes, away from God and towards its own gratification. There will come a day when we'll be free from that pull and have a new body like Christ's body and we will be able to follow Christ with not only our actions, but our hearts. There is coming a day when that will happen. This is a part of the hope that we long for now as followers of Jesus Christ. We're moving towards that day. But here in this day, we still can let God write things directly on our hearts. 
God can if we, if we give him the access to our hearts like he so desperately wants. If we, if we will, morning, noon, and night, as the psalmist has described, seek his face throughout the entire day. If when we wake up and when we go to sleep, we will seek God's face and, and learn his ways and his scriptures, then he can write his truth on our hearts. And if his truth is in our heart, then it has the potential to change everything about how we live. Who are we letting write on our hearts? For instance, we are heading into the most hotly contested presidential election cycle in hundreds of years. I would argue maybe ever. Simply because of the, the abundance of media coverage that exists and the animosity that exists between the two parties in our country. Who are we letting write on our hearts? Are we going to let the ideas of the opposing parties determine how we treat the people in our lives that we share this planet with? Are we going to allow the ideologies of opposed parties who have agendas for their own power and control that have a desire to do something which probably isn't Christ-like with our country. Both sides, by the way, both sides, I'm not taking any kind of political stance, both sides have desires that are not Christ-like. Are we going to let ourselves be discipled by constantly consuming content and media from sources that are opposed to Christ and opposed to unity and opposed to one another shape our hearts? Or are we going to let the Spirit of Christ rule our hearts and transcend the shouting and screaming of the society? Who is writing on your heart? This old covenant, it's a really, a really great teaching here in Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, especially 9 and following. Right here in chapter 9, the author is starting to make a transition in his argument where he's been up to this point arguing how Christ is, you know, is the perfect one, how Christ is better and all of these things. And now we're going to start making a transition how what Christ has done is actually what perfects us from this point forward, how, how what Christ did for us actually makes us perfect or complete or able for the joy voyage or ready to complete the voyage that God has set us on. He's making this transition now, and this is where we first come to uh, the first argument about sanctification, which is that process of setting us apart for God's purposes in Hebrews chapter 9. But here in, in the first part of Hebrews 9, the, the author makes the argument about the Old Covenant and how, how the Old Covenant could never cleanse us of a guilty conscience. Our old way of life, our old way, like we might think, well, it's just the Old Covenant. I was never under the Old Covenant. But our old, our old way of life, you can see this pretty much everywhere in society. We, we live by a earn your salvation approach in general. 
And that way of thinking and living can never actually cleanse us of a guilty conscience. In Hebrews 9.9, the author says, this is an illustration for the present time. And the illustration he's talking about is the tabernacle that he's just described in the first eight verses, how, how there was the old tabernacle and then Christ went into a better, perfect tabernacle. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's the illustration. It's an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered... Everything that was done in the Old Covenant, the gifts and sacrifices being offered, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. That's the NIV. The New American Standard puts it this way. It says, which is a symbol, the tabernacle is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So that word perfect is the same word that the, that the author of Hebrews has used several times already in this letter and will use several more times throughout the next several chapters, making the worshiper perfect in conscience. So, so what the author is saying is that all of that ritualistic stuff, trying to secure your salvation by performing the rituals of the Old Covenant, cannot make the conscience clean. They were external regulations, not internal on the heart. Only Jesus can set me free from a guilty conscience. Only Jesus can set me free from a guilty conscience. Many over the years have talked and argued there's been a lot of debate about how our country has tried to legislate morality. Oftentimes, it's, a, it's a, a denigrating statement against Christians and, and talking about trying to legislate Christian morals and forcing them onto a non-believing society, which is foolish, by the way, because non-believers cannot live up to the standards of Christ without the Spirit of Christ living in them to empower them to live up to the standards of Christ. So no, we should not try to legislate our Christian morals onto society to people who do not have the power to live up to those morals. They will always fail. But we make this argument as though every government in history has not tried to legislate morality because every government has tried to legislate morality. Every government says, this is right and this is wrong. Otherwise, there would be no government. But we would argue, like, and you've probably heard this, you can't legislate morality. It's just not possible. You can try to legislate and restrict external actions through the threat of punishment, but you can't affect the heart by the rules. You can try to, we can try to as a society, restrict wrong actions with rules and laws and the threat of punishment if we break those laws, but we cannot as a society affect the hearts of the people in our society by laws and rules and regulations. But I would argue that what our society is doing today is actually going one step further than trying to legislate morality. I think, this is just my argument, my observation, that what we're trying to do is legislate guilt out of our society. We think that if the thing that we like to do 
is illegal, then making it legal should do away with the guilt we feel for doing the thing that we like to do. And so we have tried to make as many things legal as possible so that we don't feel guilty for doing the things that we like to do, whether they're right or wrong or not, as long as they're not illegal. But the problem with this thinking is that our hearts still condemn us. Right? I mean, if we as a society made murder legal, we could legally murder somebody, but we would still feel guilty for murdering somebody. Right? We would, we would still know in our hearts that this was wrong to take another life. I would argue that this is part of God's firmware that he created all of humanity with a basic operating system where our conscience tells us what his right and his wrong are, and we spend a lot of our lives trying to justify our actions against God's design. But we would feel guilty in our hearts because our conscience would condemn us. So then I think we have to ask ourselves the question, what is guilt? I mean, if, if what Jesus did can cleanse us and it's the only thing that can cleanse us of a guilty conscience, then what is guilt? And the 1611 version of uh, Webster's Dictionary, which by the way, uh, Webster was a, a Christ follower and his original dictionary in the 1600s, you know, the huge one, great big one, a lot of the definitions had theological definitions and all kinds of scripture references through them and talking about how this word was used. So if you can get your hands on a copy of that, my dad has a few of them. It's pretty cool to look through. But according to, to Webster's 1611 definition, this, the, that guilt is the state of a moral agent which results from his actual commission of a crime or offense, knowing it to be a crime or violation of law. Guilt, therefore, implies both criminality and liableness to punishment. Guilt may proceed either from a positive act or breach of law or from voluntary neglect of a known duty. Guilt, I think, what, the, what uh, Webster is arguing is when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it for us, that is sin, which is what Scripture would say. We feel guilty when we do not do what we know to be right. But what Jesus comes and he comes and he gives us this incredible hope is that he can come and he can actually make perfect the conscience of the worshiper. This was not possible before under the old system. We, we were constantly reminded of our guilt under our old systems, whether that's under the law or under our own attempts to try to earn our salvation. We're constantly reminded that we have a guilty conscience because we keep making mistakes and somehow we're going to have to atone for those mistakes. If it's under the law, then you're atoning for it and with sacrifices, if it's in my own life and my own standards and my own morality, then I have to find out some way in my own being to compensate for the wrongs that I have done. And we hope 
that we can just do enough good to offset the wrong. But Jesus can make us complete. And Jesus can make us complete and ready for the voyage. He can make us perfect in our conscience, which is a totally radical thought for our society. Only Jesus can free me from a guilty conscience. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 through uh, 4, 3. I want to just read this for you and talk about a couple of things. This is, and I won't have time to get into all of this, so if you want to talk more about it, we could talk about it after the service. But says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is how we know. This is how we know if we belong to the truth, and this is how we know This is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. How do we know if they're from God? This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Should we then put so much, give so much influence in our lives to all of these spirits that are not of Christ, that are, according to John, antichrist? If our hearts condemn us, he says, God is greater than our hearts. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Redemption is greater than our hearts. The sacrifice of Christ is greater than our hearts. What God has done for us is greater than our hearts. And if we are in Christ, then we know that God is greater than our hearts. If our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And this is how we know that it's God living in us by the spirit he gave us. is our spirit agreeing with Christ. And when our spirit doesn't agree with Christ, we should pay attention.
in this text, it says that Jesus has gone to a great, into a greater and more perfect tabernacle, which may not seem like that big of a deal, but it's incredibly significant. Jesus went into this greater and more perfect tabernacle, not by repeated sacrifices of animals that annually reminded us of our guilt, but by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Eternal redemption, forever redemption, never-ending redemption. Jesus is eternal because he is a member of the Godhead. So he is eternal. He was before the world was created. He will be after the world is created. He is eternal. And when he came, his blood then was eternal because he is God, which means that his sacrifice is eternal because Jesus, God himself, was eternal. And his sacrifice then of his blood poured out for our sins is eternal. It will never be repeated. It does not need to be repeated because it was perfect, complete, covered everything now and for all time. So when his blood covers our conscience, he is able to cleanse our conscience forever because he is in the perfect tabernacle. You see, the old way left us with a guilty conscience because we were reminded annually of our sin. And according to Paul, if we're trying to prove our own worth to God, we're reminded constantly of our sin. Romans 7 Verse 21 through 25. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So even though we feel this internal struggle where we're constantly waging between God's law and the law of our sinful flesh, thanks be to God who delivers us through Christ Jesus our Lord. We are set free from a guilty conscience because of what Jesus did. So then, Paul says, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. God goes into, Jesus goes into the perfect tabernacle in heaven. He ascends. His ascension is incredibly important. He goes into the perfect tabernacle in heaven, and he goes bringing the eternal sacrifice to wash over our sins into that perfect tabernacle. And then it performs the role of the high priest, interceding on our behalf forever, cleansing us from sin. So this technically means that sin no longer has mastery over us because our master is righteousness. That doesn't mean we instantly have the ability to live perfectly righteous lives. It just means now our master is righteousness in Christ Jesus. We have instantly the power at our disposal but sanctification, as the author is going to start to make the argument, is a process of being set apart. We'll get into this in chapter 10, where he talks about both. It's the process of being set apart, peeling off the old man, 
takes time. Some changes are instant. Some changes are a process. And we're constantly changing. The question is, are we aware of the changes? Are we letting ourselves be shaped by the ideology of a secular society through mindlessly consuming 11 hours of content every day, or are we intentionally putting ourselves in the presence of the one who writes his laws on our hearts? This is why I am so passionate about what we're doing. This is why we talk about it every Sunday. This is why we write about it on Workplace almost every day is because we want you to be spending time with Jesus who wants to write his truth on your mind so that you can be set free from a guilt conscience, but as long as we continue to embrace the ideology of this sinful time that we're living in, we will constantly be feeling short, behind, missing the mark. What spirit is in control of your heart? Are our lives being driven by the heart change of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts? Or are our lives being driven by the heart change of the Spirit of the Antichrist in our hearts? It seems that there's no in between. This, I think, is why we are the people of a better hope. We are the people of a better hope because our hope is not based on something we hope might happen in the future. We're not, we're not putting all of our eggs in the basket of something that has yet to take place in the hopes that maybe someday this will happen and we will be okay. We are the people of a better hope because our hope is based on the historically verifiable event of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So something that has already happened and can be testified to by many evidences is what we build all of our hope on. Our hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven, into the perfect tabernacle as our high priest standing there making the case for us to the Father because of his blood that washed over us, the ascension may be the most important event of Christ's life, and we have underestimated the significance. You have a high priest right now at this very moment in heaven going to the Father on your behalf and arguing for you that they are clean, they are clean, they are clean. There is nothing to condemn them. Our hearts don't condemn us in Christ because Christ's eternal sacrifice intercedes on our behalf. We are the people of a better hope because our hope is built on something that has happened, not on something we hope will eventually take place. We don't have to worry about our sins being covered. They are eternally covered by the eternal blood of Jesus Christ, the redemption that lasts forever. We have hope. I want to show us really quickly an Easter video that we've seen several times already. But I think it makes an, an incredible point in an incredibly poignant and relevant way to remind us of the resurrection. Let's watch this video. He's still risen.
He's still risen. But, but it's October 20th. Why are you talking about the resurrection? Because he's still risen. He is forever risen. Because he rose from the dead, because he conquered death, because he conquered the thing we fear the most because of the consequences of our sin, that we might have to go through death on our own and not have anyone there on our behalf because of this great thing that has been the biggest result of our rebellion against God. Jesus actually went into that thing, beat it, and came out victorious. And then he went out as that victorious son of God and ascended up into the high place, into the highest place with the majesty in heaven and he now sits on high at the right hand of the father interceding on our behalf because he's still risen it's not just something that he rose and then died again he's still forever perpetually continually eternally risen for us we should have the greatest deepest most anchored hope of all things and our hope should be securely anchored to that hope of Jesus Christ firm and secure to which we hold fast and our eyes are set forever eternally fixed on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ our eternal anchor of hope and whatever comes in this world whatever comes in this life whatever comes that might try to crash up against the waves and the shore and the beach and the ship and everything that might throw us off course Jesus is greater we are the people of a better hope better hope Jesus is better Jesus is greater we have a better hope where are we finding our hope where do, do we, are we finding our hope in the better sacrifice of Christ? Or are we allowing ourselves to be manipulated and controlled by an antichrist society? Do not hear anything that I'm saying as a condemnation. Instead, as I've been saying several weeks now, it's a red flag. We got to pay attention. As I preached a sermon early on here, <clears throat> wake up! What are we doing? Why aren't we the people of a better hope? Why aren't we as Christians the people of the better hope that this world so desperately needs? Why do we not walk around this life with the confidence of the resurrected Christ as the hope which guides everything we do? We have a better hope. Let's live like the people of a better hope and let's go out into the world as the people of a better hope and guard our hearts against anything the enemy would seek to throw into our lives that would distract us and detract from the work that Christ has done on that cross and let's be determined to live as the people of a better hope. And see if out of the overflow of hope that God puts in our hearts, it doesn't just start to become something that the world longs for. Proverbs 4, 20 through 23, my son, children, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart for they are life 
to those who find them and health to one's whole body above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it our big idea is only Jesus can set me free from a guilty conscience only Jesus can set me free from a guilty conscience there is nothing Anywhere else in all of creation that can set me free from a guilty conscience, it is only Jesus that can do this. And our identity statement is, the spirit of Christ alone has the authority to shape my heart. I intentionally guard my heart against all other opposing forces. The spirit of Christ alone has the authority to shape my heart. I intentionally guard my heart against all other opposing forces. Will you say that out loud with me with confidence as though this is a statement you are saying that you are going to live your life by according to the scripture which we have just read, that this is something that we need to make confident in our approach. Our identity statement is this. Say it out loud boldly. The spirit of Christ alone has the authority to shape my heart. I intentionally guard my heart against all other opposing forces. One more time, with a little bit more enthusiasm, as though the one that is guarding and shaping your heart is the one who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's, let's say it like that's a, a real thing and maybe, maybe affect the way that we read together. <clears throat> Our identity statement is this. The Spirit of Christ alone has the authority to shape my heart. I intentionally guard my heart against all other opposing forces. This is why we're doing this, to shape our hearts by Jesus' presence, time with Christ, spending time in his word. This is why we do workplace, so that we can spend time together outside of here because you're going to be on this phone 11 hours a day. Maybe you can be on this phone and be encouraged. Maybe you can encourage someone. In fact, I would challenge you. What if you, uh, a lot of you have those screen time apps on your phone to tell you how much time you're spending. For every minute you spend on your phone, this might be a little bit too much. Let's just do it like, for every 10 minutes you spend on your phone, that's probably still too much. What if, like, just for every, every hour we spend on our phone, we spent a minute encouraging someone in our church? Maybe getting on workplace, maybe sending them a text message, maybe going out to have coffee, maybe doing something. But what if just for every, every hour of content we consumed from our secular society, we committed to encouraging someone in Christ for one minute. I think if we start doing that, things will be a lot different next week when we come back together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this hope. I thank you for the hope that you have given me in Christ. I thank you for the assurance of hope that we are confident that what you have said you will do, you will do, because what you have said you have, will do, you already did. 
that you have already made the promise, you have fulfilled the promise, you kept the promise in Jesus Christ, you have secured the promise and sealed the promise in us through the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit that's here in this gathering, dwelling in the hearts of believers. Right now, at this very moment, we have the seal of the promise that you are going to do what you said you would do. Father, I thank you that we have this incredible, overflowing, overwhelming hope in Christ. And I pray, God, right now, in this moment, would you fill us, your people, to overflowing with hope. May you anchor our hope in the work of Jesus Christ. May you anchor our hope in the finished work of Christ who cleanses us eternally from a guilty conscience and that the work that Christ did for us can never be undone. That there is nothing that can undo this work and the sacrifice that was made for us. That we have a high priest eternally in your presence, seated at your right hand, interceding for us. And as guilty as we may feel, we know that you see us through the cleansing righteousness of the blood of Jesus Christ poured out over our souls. Help us to live this way. Help us to live as the people of a better hope. And I pray, Father, send us out of here so full of hope that people around us in our lives this afternoon and in the week ahead will say, hey, um, what, what's wrong with you, weirdo? Why do you have so much hope? Don't you see everything that's wrong with the world? And we can respond and say, greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. Thank you, we praise you, give you all the glory in Jesus' name.